If you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn it, turn in it or turn it on, if it's an electronic one, to Luke chapter 23. If you're using the, the Pew Bible, if you could just, you can go to page 884. This morning we're finishing our series on sort of the, the series we've been doing, looking at the final words of Jesus from the cross, sort of His last words. And, and given that idea of final words or, or last words, I, I took just a couple of minutes one day last week to just kind of Google, kind of do a Google search and see, you know, what are sort of famous last words? Now, you could easily do that search, and there's a lot of interesting sort of um, famous last words, and so I'll leave that up to you to do whenever you want other than don't do it right now because you'll feel really guilty if you did that during the service, okay? And you know, so don't do it now, do it later. Um, but the reason I bring that up isn't to tell you what you should search on Google for this week. The, the reason I brought it up was because of two things that I noticed when I did the search, sort of two things that stood out, okay? One was this, that there is something about famous last words, especially of people that are famous, that we're kind of fascinated by their last words. We, we're kind of intrigued by what do people say right before they die? Now, in some cases, we're intrigued or fascinated by them because they're funny. Sometimes it's because they're also, you know, they're a witty thing. Sometimes we're fascinated by them because there's sort of some incredible wisdom that the people have when they share those things. They're sort of very insightful. Sometimes, quite honestly, we're intrigued by them because they're weird or odd. No one knows why when Walt Disney died, did he say, Kurt Russell, and then he died. Another reason why I mentioned this, this search I did is because it also talked about this, some of the websites talked about the fact that we think we have this expectation that the last words of somebody are going to be very significant. So if a famous person is dying, we're expecting their last words are going to be incredibly significant, but probably more importantly than a famous person. You and I expect someone that we love that their last words are going to be incredibly significant. One of my struggles with my dad's death is really because of that. See, the last time I saw my dad alive when I left his nursing home room in mid-July was he was trying to say something. But the combination of his Parkinson's and the dimension that came along with his Parkinson's, whatever it was he was saying, I, I don't know. I could not understand it. And I didn't know when I walked out that day, I had some sense that might be the last time I saw him, but I didn't know for sure. But I so wanted those words. And when I got the phone call very early on the morning of August 13th, I so wanted those words. If it is true that you and I expect something significant from last words, if that's true for you and, and me, what significance should you and I find in these very last words of Jesus 
How should those words or what significance should those words have in our lives? Well, I want us to look at those before we kind of answer what's the significance of those words. I want you to read with me sort of the scenario around those words. So Luke chapter 23, verses 44 down to 46, and they read this way. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Well, the sunlight failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Those words from the cross, and and more broadly, what Jesus did on the cross, was very significant. That that's clear when you see what the people who were there thought, what they were experiencing. So if you read with me, verse 47 and 48, it says this. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. I have said at least a few times in this series that the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus is undoubtedly one of the most significant events that has ever happened and ever will happen in all of history. It's not a light trailing, it's huge. And clearly from the people that were eyewitnesses, the people that were there, it impacted them. But what about us? I mean, what about us? We are removed from the cross by time and space. What significance could Jesus' final words on the cross have bearing in our lives? So what I want to do this morning is I want us to think about and kind of walk through sort of two implications that I think flow out of Jesus' words. Two implications that I honestly believe should be incredibly significant in our lives. Okay, implication number one flowing out of these words is simply this. In Jesus, there is no failure. In Jesus, there is no failure. About a week ago, a story was shared with me about a young lady in our community. And, and basically what the story, the, the, the end of the story was she was wanting to explain, or the point of the story, she was wanting to explain why she was so committed, why she so valued a piece of technology. And in her mind, it was really simple why she would be so committed to that piece of technology. You see, her parents and her family and her friends had let her down. Repeatedly, again and again and again, people had disappointed her. They they hadn't been there for her. They had failed her. And she kind of had this stream of heartache behind her, but this piece of technology had never let her down. You know, I think one of the hardest things in life to deal with is the failure of people. You know, a person will make a commitment, but then they don't keep it. They'll, They'll make a promise but they don't deliver. They say, yes, I'll take on that responsibility, but then they don't complete it. 
That can be true in a workplace setting. That can be true in a school. That can be true in a friendship. That can be true in a family. That can be true in a marriage. That can be very true in a church. That can be incredibly true in our church. That's a very tough part of life. And there is a measure to which that's simply a bitter pill you and I may simply have to swallow. It just is. The failure of people, my failure, my failure as the pastor of this church, my failure as a husband, my failure as a dad, is part of the reason why forgiveness is so hard to give and yet is so desperately needed. Now, in contrast to all of that talking about failure and about hurt that way too many of us have experienced, there is a huge implication that comes from the words of Jesus, from those final words on the cross. Let me underline it again. In Jesus, there is no failure. There is no failure. Look at what Jesus said again. In Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. I want you to make, I'm going to make for you two observations out of those verse, out of that verse. Okay, two things that think flow out of that we need to see. Here's the first observation. Luke does not use normal death words to describe Jesus' death. Now, we can read the words, he breathed his last, and we kind of get the sense that probably means he died, and it does, he died. But that's not the way death would be talked about in the New Testament. That's not how they described it. That wasn't normal verbiage. Not only that, it wasn't just that and when he breathed his last, it wasn't just Luke who said that. I'm going to put up on the screen. Jeff's going to put up on the screen for us. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, and John chapter 19, verse 30. Both of them describing. So what does Matthew say? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The verse we looked at last week, John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, I know you don't sit around during the week trying to read how ancient cultures describe death. I get that. So you're going to have to kind of believe me at this point when I say that's not how death was normally described. See, death didn't kind of come on Jesus and, and kind of sneak up on him and get him. You read those verses and it's like Jesus is active in his death. He yielded. He gave up. Both of those verbs are active verbs. He was the one making this happen. He did this. The gospel writers, Mark says something similar to Luke's. That's why I didn't put Mark's up. But the idea is the gospel writers seem to be saying, you know what, Jesus' death is not a normal death. There's something unique about it. There's something special about it. There's something significant about it. We need to notice that coming out of Luke 23, 46. 
Second observation. Jesus in death is a picture of control. Okay, Jesus is this picture of control. Now, because this would take a long time, we're going to kind of shorten it. But if you were to read, okay, all four accounts in the Gospels of Jesus' arrest and Jesus' trial and Jesus' execution, the crucifixion, and you read it from the vantage point of you were one of the Roman leaders or one of the Jewish leaders, it's like chaotic. They're scrambling. They're trying to figure this out. That They're like not in control at all. But who's in control? The one that was arrested, the one that was on trial, and the one that was crucified. Even in Jesus' death, He's in control. Okay, why point that out? Why draw attention to those observations? Okay, if you have a Bible, turn over with me just a few pages to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, the Lord Jesus said these words. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Okay, pretty directly. Very directly, you could say, Jesus is making it clear. He has authority over his life. So, folks, the reason why Luke and the other gospel writers kind of point us to those observations, say, hey, Jesus' death is, it's a death, but it's a different death. Part of why they say Jesus is in control is because Jesus' life was not taken from him. Do you understand that? It wasn't taken from him. He's saying in John chapter 10, I'm going to lay down my life. And that's exactly what he did in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. He laid down his life. But why? Why did he lay down his life? Well, look at verse, both verse 17 and 18. What do they tell us? He laid down his life so he could take it up again. He laid it down so he could take it up again. See, when Jesus died, he wasn't failing. It wasn't like Jesus came to change the world and that didn't quite work out. No, in his death, he literally is fulfilling his promise. The promise he made, I'm going to lay my life down. He isn't failing. He's doing exactly what he said. In fact, he is proving he doesn't fail. He's proving I do what I say. Completely, I do it. Jesus died knowing he's going to take it up again. No doubt. Because he doesn't fail. Why is it important for us to know that? Zoom in on the word that begins verse 17. That little word for. 
The word literally means because or therefore. The idea of putting the word for there is telling us, hey, why, what Jesus is talking about in verse 17 and verse 18 is because of what came before it. There's a reason why he's got authority. There's a reason why he's going to lay down his life and take it back up. So we need to read verse 14 to 16 to find what's the reason. Okay, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice and there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus is telling us, hey, why do I lay down my life? I lay down my life for my sheep. And these sheep are going to know me. They, they know me, and I know them. Now, by the word know there, okay, that, that, there's a few different ways to say no in the Greek language. The word that's translated know there is, is an idea of sort of experiential knowing, of relational knowing, that you really, you're part of this person's life. Because Jesus didn't fail, what he's telling us is, hey, you can know me as the good shepherd. You can be a part of my flock. We can go through life together. See, you and I live in a world where there's a lot of failure, where a lot of people are going to let us down. They don't necessarily mean to, but they will. But here's the thing, we have a good shepherd who calls us to live with him. A shepherd who literally will never fail. If you are weary, if you're kind of heavy hearted, if you're saying life isn't as simple as I would like it to be, please hear the significance of Jesus' final words. He does not fail. And as the only one who doesn't fail, please hear him also invite you to come. Invite you to be with him. In his own words, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 verses 28, to 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus doesn't fail, and he is inviting you to come. Will you come? Will you come to Him? Implication number one of Jesus' final words is, in Jesus there is no failure. Implication number two, Jesus prepares us for the inevitable. Jesus prepares you and I for the inevitable. Verse 
there is a great possibility. I think you could say virtually a 100% possibility that every single one of us are going to experience physical death. I'm going to go out on a limb on that one. The only way that won't happen, the only way you and I will not experience physical death is if the Lord Jesus returns before we do physically die. That's the only way around it. So in light of that, let me ask you a question. A question that we all need to ask and I think we all need to have an answer for. Are you ready to die? I know you're thinking, wow, I come to church to hear just such lovely, upbeat things. Are you ready to die? It's pretty sober. It's a somber question. And when I think of that question, I, I, there was a couple of statements that were told to me a number of years ago that kind of, I see that question and these things pop up in my head. Two statements. One statement is simply this. Pastors must prepare people to die. Anybody want to have lunch? <laughs> Second statement, you cannot really live till you are prepared to die. I mean, if it's the inevitable, if you're not ready to deal with that, you're really not going to get around to this living thing. Now, those questions, that, that, that question and those statements, to me, kind of set us up for some tension. Part of the tension comes from the fact that some of us in this room like to control things. So we kind of have these elaborate plans. We are opinionated, and life must go this way. If it doesn't go this way, it's wrong, it's bad, it cannot happen. Some of us can be control freaks and at the same time not really want to deal with hard and sobering things. We don't want to face those questions. So we, we try to live life avoiding anything that's hard. About 12, 10, 12 days ago, God convicted me using a podcast that was talking about an article in the New York Times that basically concluded that we as Americans love convenience and we run to convenience and will avoid anything that's hard. We just, we don't like the hard stuff. But here's the thing. Reality will show us that avoiding hard stuff and trying to be a control freak is not going to work out very well for us in the long term. It might work for a little while. I don't deny that. For a little while, it might work. But in the long term, no, it's not. It's not going to So there comes the question, how do you prepare yourself to die so that you can really live? Look back at verse 46. 
Luke 23. Zoom in on the words Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Okay, focus on the word commit at this point. Okay, the word commit literally means to entrust. The idea of the word is that you give something to someone for safekeeping. Now, Jesus is quoting there, in those words, He's quoting from Psalm 31, verse 5, the first part of that verse. And we are told that the first part of Psalm 31, especially verse 5, would be an evening or a bedtime prayer that a pious Jewish person would pray. Those would be words they would pray. Kind of like if you grew up and your parents taught you to that prayer of, you know, Lord, I lay me down to sleep and if my soul, God, the you know, I, that wasn't the prayer I grew up with, so I didn't, sorry, you know the prayer, so let's move on. Yeah, I talk for a living exceptionally well. Focus. I'm going to look at the words, not anybody else. But Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In praying that prayer, Jesus actually is praying with a profound amount of confidence. He's saying, God, I'm going to take all that I am, my spirit, and I'm putting it in your hands. I entrust me to you, all of me to you. So in those words, right before Jesus died, He's expressing confidence. You could say he's dying with confidence. So very simply, the way we prepare to die so that we can actually live is having confidence in God. Let me say it again. The way we prepare to die so we can actually live is by having confidence in God. Now, the question then becomes, why would I have confidence in God? Again, zoom in on the word commit. The idea of that word, sort of the idea behind the word, what makes the word possible is you and I can get thinking, well, I'm committing, so it's really up to me to kind of take what I have and put it in somebody else's hand. That's not the emphasis in this word. The emphasis in this word of committing, of entrusting, is on the one that's receiving this. That the one you're giving it to is trustworthy. The commitment isn't about you, it's about who you're giving it to. Which takes us back to the first implication. In Jesus there is no failure. He is trustworthy. See, and when I begin to see that He is trustworthy, when I see that and realize that, you know what? He can protect me when it comes to death. I don't have to dread. I don't have to fear. He can handle it. I can entrust myself there. But if I can entrust myself in my death to Him, I can also entrust Him with my life. I'm actually now prepared to, to live life because now I know how to live life. You say, well, what does it look like to say I trust God when I'm alive? I mean, if I'm dying, I'm trusting, okay, but what does it mean in my life right now? 
Well, let me suggest to you a few things. One is, if you trust God, one expression of that is you're going to obey God. I just looked at an accountant, or two, actually. I'm bouncing back between accountants right now. So let's talk about obeying God when it comes to finances. Okay, if I obey God, if I trust God, I'm going to obey what He says about my financial life. So that means giving isn't going to be, well, I'll get around to it someday. No, it's a priority thing. It's a first fruits thing. It's I start my financial life with giving. Maybe another way to do it. A lesson that, that God, I think, is trying to drive into my soul is, Lloyd, if you trust me, yes, you do need to work. And you need to work in a way that is honoring to me, Lloyd. But, Lloyd, are you going to trust me enough with your schedule to rest the way I tell you to rest? If I trust God, am I going to keep trying to burn the candle at both ends? Or am I going to say, God, I trust you? Another way this trust, I think, gets expressed, another way, how would we say it, is I trust God when I believe that even though I fail, that God can redeem that in my life and that He can also touch the lives of people I've failed. So instead of living in fear, instead of living in shame, I trust God that He forgives and I trust God that He restores. Maybe another way this gets expressed is if I trust God that, hey, God's going to help me forgive those who failed me and that I believe, God, you can touch me in all those places where it hurts inside. You can touch that. So instead of me living with this attitude of bitterness and wanting to be away from people, I realize God can address that. And even though people have failed me and I've failed people, we can come back together because of what Jesus has done. We don't have to be separated. We can come back together. Now let me say very clearly, I am not wanting to suggest that the things I have just said are easy or simple. But I honestly do believe if we're prepared to die, if we can entrust Him there, we're actually prepared for life. We can actually do this thing. Jesus wants us to be confident in both life and death. The gospel sets us up for that. Consider what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 to 58. Oh, death. Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Well, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Here's the thing. Death is a pretty terrifying thing. I've been in enough hospital rooms when somebody has died to know it's not an easy thing to go there. But what is this verse? What do these verses tell us? 
If I've trusted the Lord Jesus, if I've turned from sin to God, and I trust the Lord Jesus as my Savior, death isn't an enemy. There is victory. I have victory. I can face this, not be, I literally can face it in confidence because I have victory. And if I have victory in facing death, then verse 58 is basically saying, let's get on living, folks. We can do this. We can do this. We can really live life. Jesus' final words. What is the significance of Jesus saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? What is the significance of that? I pray in those words, you hear a call that God is calling you to entrust yourself to God knowing He doesn't fail. That in those words, God is calling us to entrust ourselves to Him knowing He doesn't fail. Sometime today, I want to ask you to do something, whether it's before you leave this room, whether it's later on today, maybe you need to do this individually, maybe you need to do this as a family, but I think there's three questions. In light of that call, all of us need to ask and answer. Question number one would be this. Are you ready to die? Question number two. Are you confident in your relationship with the Lord Jesus? See, the victory that gives us confidence isn't ours. It's His. Am I connected to Him? Do I know I'm connected to Him? Do I know I'm in relationship with Him? Do I know He's the good shepherd and I'm one of the sheep? Do I know that? And then number three. Are there parts of your life that you are not entrusting to God? And if that's the case, why? Why? Jesus does not fail. He wants you to be ready for death and for life. Folks, if any one of those three questions raises something for you, Can I ask you, can I urge you, please contact me. We want to help you live and die with the confidence that Jesus' final words offer each of us. Jesus is literally saying, entrust yourself to God. He doesn't fail. Let's live in confidence. Folks, normally I would do something right at this point, so we're not going to do that quite yet. Because one of the things that we want to do this morning is we've got five folks that are joining us sort of officially as members today. And so I need to go down here real quick, and I'll do it the polite way and go down the stairs, not jump off. But we have five folks, and so Amy, if you want to come up, Terry and Lisa and Roger and Robin, I think I see you back there. If you guys can come on down here with me. Um, 
to kind of connect what we're doing right now actually, yeah, to the sermon. They didn't know I was going to say this. I should have said this in the membership class. But they're saying they know they're going to die. And they need to be prepared for that and prepared for life. And so they're in essence saying to us as their church family, we want to formally say we're a part of this family because we want your help to be ready to die so we can actually live. And they're asking us, would we commit to help them with that as they're committing to help us with that? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to welcome them and then I'm going to, they're going to go up into the atrium and I'm going to ask you if you would go and we call it the right hand of fellowship because we shake right hands. So it's also in Galatians chapter 2. But Amy, we're thrilled that you're here. Lisa, get the right order. Lisa, Terry, we are thrilled. And Roger and Robin, make sure you're doing the right order. We are very grateful you're here. This is your one time where it's okay with me for you guys to leave the service before I pray. It's your one time. Never again. But you can do it this time. So if you guys want to go on up, and I'm going to, you guys ready out there to shake hands? And can I ask you again, would you pray with me? Father, it is a very sobering reality to realize there's some very real things that are going to come at us. Lord, there's probably some of us in this room right now that have things in our lives. We're just, we're weary and we are heavy laden. Maybe we're not confident, we're not sure, we don't know what to do. Lord, maybe hearing questions and things said about dying really unsettles us. And there's a part in which, Lord, I think that should unsettle us. But if that's the inevitable, how do we deal with that? Father, I thank you that through Jesus' death, he didn't just give us an example, but he gave us help and he's calling us now to entrust ourselves to you knowing you don't fail, knowing that you can provide and protect for us in death and in life. And I pray, Lord, we would long for that. Lord, for Amy and Lisa and Terry and Roger and Robin, we want to thank you that they want to formally say they're a part of this body. They're saying they want help to live lives and to prepare for death with confidence. May we as a church family help one another with that. We thank you for adding them into our midst. And we pray, Lord, you are going to use them for our good, for your glory. And Lord, we are going to build relationships with them that are for their good and your glory as well. Father, thank you for the chance to be a part of this life, of what you're doing, etc. In the very precious name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.